This morning's text is from 1 Samuel, chapter 14, beginning with the 24th verse. And the men of Israel had been hard-pressed that day. So Saul had laid an oath on the people, saying, Cursed be the man who eats food until it is evening, and I am avenged on my enemies. So none of the people had tasted food. Now when all the people came to the forest, behold, there was honey on the ground. And when the people entered the forest, behold, the honey was dropping. But no one put his hand to his mouth, for the people feared the oath. But Jonathan had not heard his father charge the people with the oath. So he put out the tip of the staff that was in his hand and dipped it in a honeycomb and put his hand to his mouth, and his eyes became bright. Then one of the people said, Your father strictly charged the people with an oath, saying, Cursed be the man who eats food this day. And the people were faint. Then Jonathan said, My father has troubled the land. See how my eyes have become bright because I tasted a little of this honey. How much better if the people had eaten freely today of the spoil of their enemies that they had found. For now the defeat among the Philistines has not been great. Amen. So in Greek mythology, you may have heard the story of a man named King Midas, and he had helped Silenus, who was a friend of Dionysus, the god of wine and happiness and merriment, and um, Dionysus uh, offered him any wish he wanted, King Midas, in return for his kindness to his friend. And King Midas said, okay, I wish that everything I touch turns into solid gold. Sure enough, he was granted that wish. So he was excited. He tried it out. He touched a twig, and there it was, a golden twig. He touched a rose bush, and it turned into gold. Very excited, thinking about how wealthy he will be. And he had fun with this for a while, until at the end of a long day of making things gold. That's hard work. He uh, reached out, famished for his food, and sure enough, it turned to gold as well. Um, and his daughter ran in to see him, and he unthinkingly, just unthinkingly, yeah, whatever that means, without thinking... He picked her up, and she became a statue of gold. So it ended up pretty, pretty rough for him. But yet, from that mythology, we get the phrase, the Midas touch, or the golden touch. You might have heard that. Uh, somebody who seems to have everything go their way, everything they begin to do turns to success. We say about them, he's got the Midas touch, or the golden touch. Now, our text today, however, confirms that King Saul had the reverse Midas touch, and that everything he touched seemed to turn to gloom. There seems to be a problem here. Um, there's a stark contrast that we've seen now, especially since uh, chapter 12 all the way through to 14. There's a stark contrast between Jonathan, the son of Saul, and Saul himself. We see in Jonathan a man of faith, right? A man who takes God at his word and a man who has given himself over to serve the God of Israel. And that faith in God, that big faith in God, causes Jonathan to do big things, believing in the power of that big God. Whereas Saul, on the other hand, seems to be looking at Saul. He's all excited about Saul's kingdom and building his own reputation. And very apathetic when it comes to actually taking action, but quick to take the glory of the battles that Jonathan began by faith and by taking action. And so what a contrast, right? And we, we see last week, or the last time we were here in 1 Samuel, uh, in verse 23, we see this glorious deliverance. That's how that section ended. After Jonathan and his armor bearer 
they, they just boldly climbed the side of a cliff and destroyed a garrison of Philistines, 20 men, uh, because they said, God's given us this land. Let's move. Let's trust God. And, and they did. And that set off a chain reaction of Philistines running for the hills in all quadrants that they were um, holding uh, militarily. And then, of course, Saul jumped in on that and decided to get some of the glory too, and all of his men joined the battle. And it ended in verse 23 uh, saying this, So the Lord saved Israel that day, and the battle passed beyond Beth-Avon. So there was this great victory. God, of course, gets the glory. It was God who gave the, the, the great victory. And so what do we see there? We see deliverance. God brought deliverance, right? Great rejoicing. But then we contrast that with verse 24. And I like how the Amplified says it here, so I'm going to use the Amplified version. It says, But the men of Israel were hard-pressed that day because Saul had put the people under a curse. Do you see that contrast? The Hebrew brings out very strong. And again, I think the, the Amplified does a great job of, of making that contrast. One minute, you have God bringing a great victory. God brings salvation. He delivers the people. But, on the other hand, the men of Israel were distressed. So there's distress here from deliverance to distress. Why? Because Saul had put the people under an oath, basically is what he's saying. He made an oath to God, a rash vow that says, nobody's going to eat anything until we have great victory over the Philistines. He said, cursed be the man who eats food before evening and before I have taken vengeance on my enemies. <laughs> so none of the people ate any food. So here's this rash vow. And by the way, these rash vows that, that men make in, in the Bible, especially the Old Testament, they never work out well. They never do. I mean, we've got Judges 11 that tells us the story of Jephthah's vow. He was a judge that God raised up in Israel to deliver the people, and he brought a great victory. But verse 30 and 31 says this, Jephthah made a vow to the Lord and said, if you will indeed give the Ammonites uh, into my hand, then whatever comes out of the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the Ammonites, it shall be the Lord's, and I will offer it up as a burnt offering. And of course, many commentators think he was hoping his mother-in-law walked out. I'm kidding. <laughs> I can never resist that. That's not good. Judges 11:34 goes on to tell us who walked out of the house. Then Jephthah came to his house at Mizpah. And, his, and this is what he saw, his daughter coming out to meet him with tambourines and with dancing, and she was his only child. Didn't end very well. And it normally doesn't. Rash vows, right? Saul's real motivation, by the way, what was his motivation for his rash vow? By the way, by the way, the rash vow thing, I just want to remind us what Jesus said. He says, we, we don't need to be swearing at, at, at all. We don't need to say, Lord, I swear if you do this, I'm going to do this. We don't need to make any vows like that or swear by anything. Jesus said, simply let your yes be yes and your no be no, right? Just live a life of faith, believing God, doing what he's commanded us. And we don't need to make any rash vows or oaths. We just need to be who we are, God's people. But Saul's motivation, what was his real motivation, by the way, for his rash vow? His passion to pursue the Philistines. It sounds very noble, right? On the outside, he's very passionate to pursue these Philistines, but it was really not spurred on by giving God glory. That wasn't his motivation. It was spurred on by selfishness. 
a personal desire for revenge and glory. That's what Saul's motivation was. It was all about him. He said, nobody is going to eat any food until I have gained vengeance and revenge on my enemies. Hmm. So whenever, folks, listen, this, I know we can look at Saul and think, wow, this guy was terrible. He was more worried about his, his own glory than he was God's glory. And it's easy for us to judge him, but we do the same thing. Whenever we are so self-absorbed with our own desires, with our own purposes, with our own goals, it will always result in us taking advantage of those around us. It will, it will always do that. Anytime we as sinful creatures focus on us and our desires become tantamount in our life, we can't help but use other people in the wrong ways. Manipulation to get what we want. That's exactly what Saul is doing here. He's, he's wanting glory and it's driving him to the point of literally bringing distress on his own people by making some rash, silly selfish vow that he will get vengeance on his enemies and we're going to be so dedicated god's going to see this great act of vowing and and such you know we're going to fast lord so that you'll give us the victory that was not for god's glory that was all for saul and, and we can do the same we can do this in our marriage when we've got such a an, an intention in, in our hearts to do what we want to do Maybe it's a, a man who's just so bent on making money and moving up in his company and everything's about that and he manipulates and uses his own family. He neglects them all for his own purposes, all for his own gain. That's wrong. It can happen at work. You know, we are ambassadors for Christ, God tells us. And every vocation that we have in this building right now, every, everything represented here, Whatever you are doing for a living is a holy vocation unto God. How do I know that? Because God has put you there. So wherever we're living in this natural world, folks, we are holy unto the Lord and we're his ambassadors. And Christ is our boss. He's the one we're working for. He's the one we're bringing glory to. And therefore, at work, we're doing our job. We're doing the best job. But we're also realizing that I am here to influence people for Christ. And yet many Christians thwart that opportunity because of their own selfishness and their desires to climb the, quote, company ladder or to, to make themselves better. And they will walk all over the people they're supposed to be witnessing and ministering to for the glory of God. That's how selfishness blinds us. That's how we become Saul. We'll do anything, even with a smile and even under the guise of helping somebody else, and yet it's all for our own selfish glory. And this is where it happens in the church. It's going to happen in the church. It's rampant, actually, because of our selfish, sinful natures. This is when we do things under the guise of serving God, and yet it's all about our own glory. And we're fighting over who gets to do what and we're manipulating so that we look good and that we're in this and we're in that and we're in charge of that and we, get, we got to do this. And all of it is so easily disguised as saying, but I'm serving God by doing all these things. And yet the truth is we're feeding our own selfish pride and arrogance. 
And this is a tough thing. I'm telling you, it is, it, is, it is hard for us to battle the truth of who we are in our hearts. Think about this. Saul wasn't worried uh, that the people would, would, would stop. Well, I'm sorry, he was so worried that the people would stop fighting. This is what happened. He was so worried that his people would stop fighting and pursuing the Philistines and that he would have some great victory that he put them under this vow, this extreme vow that they would be cursed if they stopped to eat. So again, sin is insane, right? That, that doesn't even make sense. If you're going to be fighting all day, you want your soldiers to have nourishment at some point. But no, he is so tunnel-visioned on this idea of getting glory for himself that he makes this rash vow. God, we're going to make this vow. Because of that token vow, you're going to bless us. That's really what it's about. And he's not even concerned about his people. He wants them to continue to pursue those Philistines uh, uh, past the mountains of Ephraim. That's the goal. It's like this. Saul knew he needed God's blessing to obtain his own victory, not in order to give God glory. Again, this is where we gotta, gotta be thinking, how, what about my motives? Do, do I know I need God's blessing just to honor him? That's the truth, folks. We need God's blessing in order to honor him. That's true. But many of us want God's blessing in order to get what we want. Do you see that difference? Many of us want God's blessing in order to get what we want. So, so, so Saul, in his case, he performed this religious token act of a vow to God. <laughs> Again, to cover his spiritual bases so that God would give him what he wanted, not caring about the kingdom of God. He cared about his own kingdom. Here's the application for us. Oh, I'll go to church this Sunday in order to have a blessed week. <laughs> I'll go to church on Sunday in order to have a blessed week. Wrong answer. Wrong. Wrong question, wrong statement, whatever. It's wrong. We go to church in order to worship God. Period. Whether I have the worst week of my life or not doesn't matter. We gather together because God commanded his people to gather and he deserves our worship. We don't deserve his blessings. I'll read my Bible this morning so I have a good day. <laughs> I'll make sure I read my Bible, get that in, so that my day goes good. Wrong. Wrong motive. I read my Bible in order to nourish my soul so that I can endure suffering and hardships and so that I can take the blessings of God the right way. Does that make sense? We read God's word for nourishment. Our souls must feed. Jesus said, you don't live by bread. You live, you exist by every word of God. It's not about you read the Bible to get something from God. You read the Bible because it's all you've got as a believer to live on. It nourishes us and gives us the strength to suffer well and to take the blessings of God well because blessings from God can be used by the enemy to destroy lives just as much as suffering hurts us. We need the word of God with the motive of saying, God, I am being fed by you. This is your nourishment to me. And I'm reading your word just because I love you and I want to know you more. 
there are no strings attached. This doesn't mean that my kids never get sick and that my son gets accepted to that college and that my daughter makes the soccer team and blah, blah, blah. No, we're not doing things such as read our Bible or go to church or pray in order for God to somehow give us good things. We're doing those things because that's what God's people do in relationship with God. They love Him. This is what... I got to get back to the sermon here in a minute, but I'm starting to feel better. But this is what happens when we in our marriage do things for our spouses just in order to get something for ourselves versus just serving them because we love them with nothing expected in return. This is what God calls us to do. You see, the problem was Saul, Saul saw the kingdom as something to rule. Jonathan saw the kingdom as something to serve. Do you see the difference? That's why Jonathan is the example of a believer's life. This is how we will approach serving the kingdom. Selfless. With no, we don't want glory. We don't want any prestige. We are just serving the God who deserves our all. Period. We're not ruling. We're not building our self-esteem or our own kingdom. We've died to all that. And now we're service and we're in service to the king. Okay, having said that, let's move on. What, what's our motive? That's the question here, right? That's what Saul reminds us of. What's our motive then for what we do? Because it may look good on the outside, and it does. This is the thing. This is the thing about token service, token acts, things that God does command us to do that are good, but they can be very token. What I mean by that is they're so visible on the outside, we can be rotten on the inside and still do these things, and people think we're great and super spiritual. But God sees the heart and he's more interested in why we're doing than what we're doing. That's what he says in 1 Samuel 16, verse 7. Listen to this. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance, on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. And that outward appearance doesn't mean man looks on the, the, the clothes or the style. The outward works. Man looks at the actions, the outward actions of somebody, the works they're doing. But God looks on the why they're doing it, the heart behind it. Why are they doing that? So Saul, we, we see he's pursuing for the wrong reason. He's not pursuing for the glory of God. He's pursuing for the glory of Saul. 1 Samuel 14, 25 through 26 shows us how this pursuit continues into the woods. It says this, that now when all the people came to the forest, behold, there was honey on the ground. And when the people entered the forest, behold, the honey was dropping. But no one put his hand to his mouth for the people feared the oath. Oh, yes, the brilliant oath of Saul. Think about this. This is wild. God had providentially supplied a very nutritional food source and convenient food source for the army. Honey. 
It's dripping. And the Bible says that that land of Canaan is the land where milk and honey flow. And here, here they come into these woods and these bees are everywhere, right? And these, these, these honeycombs are dripping and the ground is just saturated with honey everywhere. Honey. Did you know that one teaspoon of honey has 17 grams of carbs, 64 calories, and is rich in antioxidants? I'm just saying. And it's a natural, um, um, what's the word here? Uh, the anti-inflammatory. And it has natural healing tendencies for infection. All of which soldiers who are beat up and, and sore and, and inflamed. And so, this is the perfect, this is providence. God has given this army a rejuvenation, right? They can just simply take some honey. How do we know? Because Jonathan understands this and he sees this. Look at this. Verse 27 to 30. But Jonathan had not heard his father's charge to the people with the oath. So he put out the tip of his staff that was in his hand and dipped it into the honeycomb and put his hand to his mouth and his eyes became bright. Then one of the people said, your father strictly charged the, the people with an oath saying, cursed be the man who eats food this day. And the people were faint. So again, the writer gives us this result of this great idea of Saul, his great oath. He's putting the people in distress. They're faint, they're weak. And yet he's pushing them forward for his own glory. To which Jonathan said, my father has troubled the land. Now there's many translations for this. One of them could be my father's ridiculous. <laughs> could be. <laughs> because he goes on to say, See how my eyes have become bright because I tasted a little of this honey? Do you guys, you know, use some common sense here and not see that this is a benefit as we're weary and on the march all day? And here, here, here is this great, wonderful, natural source of strength. He said, how much better if the people had eaten freely today of the spoil of their enemies that they found. For now, the defeat among the Philistines has not been great. It's not been as great as it could be. It's, it's not complete now. Why? Because Saul was trusting in his, number one, his own ideas. Lord, let me help you out. You see, God had already, the funny thing about Saul is he doesn't even see that God's the one doing this. Jonathan gets it. Jonathan just said, Lord, we'll start. You're, you're, it's yours. So we'll just follow you. Now Saul comes along and says, well, let's make a big vow and look good at ourselves here. Make this about us. So notice the, the, the frazzled and ravenous army presses on. They continue obeying this outward command of Saul not to eat. Jo Jonathan did eat. So verse 31, they struck down the Philistines that day from Michmash to Ajalon. And the people were very faint. So the Holy Spirit continues to remind us of the effects of this rash vow. They're pressing on, but they're very faint, and they had to stop at Agilon here. And they fought all day. That whole day is what it's saying. That day, that encompasses now, we're moving into the evening, the end of the vow, right? And they stop here at Agilon. They've gone all day without food. 
And this is where we see Saul's oath backfire. And actually that thing that he did outwardly as a religious act to look good to God actually ends up causing his people to sin against God. As we see verse 32 through 35, the people are starving. So it says the people pounced on the spoil and took sheep and oxen and calves and slaughtered them on the ground and the people ate them with the blood. They're eating raw food. These animals are probably still alive. They're just cutting meat off and eating it. Look what it goes on to say. Then they told Saul, Behold, the people are sinning against the Lord by eating with the blood. And he said, You have dealt treacherously. How dare you people? <laughs> Woo! What is wrong with you people eating and being so crazy that you didn't prepare the food properly? Because we're starving. We're starving. He says, Let every man bring his ox or his sheep and slaughter them here and eat. Well, let me back up. And he said, you have dealt treacherously. Roll a great, great stone to me here. And then Saul said, disperse yourselves among the people and, 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 and say to them, let every man bring his ox and his sheep and slaughter them here and eat and do not sin against the Lord by eating with the blood. So every one of the people brought his ox with him uh, that night and they slaughtered them there. And Saul built an altar to the Lord it was the first altar that he built to the Lord. That, again, is a, is a sarcastic side note. Saul's not that interested in worshiping God. This is the first time as being king of, he's, oh, let's build an altar to God. What do you know? But at any rate, this rock, this stone, that was the proper thing to do. Why? They would bring the, the animals there. They would slaughter them on this stone where the blood would flow off into the ground and they would basically bleed the animals so now they could prepare the meat. This is a serious command. Back in Leviticus 17.10. Now here it is. This is Saul. When you think about it, it's so funny that the people were painfully careful to keep a man's rules, but they were quick to sin against God's established law. Interesting, right? Here was a rule by a man, Saul, no eating until evening. Because I, I, I want us to keep going. And yet in Leviticus 17.10, the people already knew this. It says, if any one of the house of Israel or of the strangers who sojourn among them eats any blood, I will set my face against that person who eats blood and will cut him off from among his people. That's a pretty strong law that's already established by God. And yet I'm just saying, it's just a side comment here, but it's funny how we sometimes are quick to obey, obey man's laws and just as quick to disobey God's clear commands of scripture oh that we would pray for discernment but notice this in verses 36 to 39 as we continue everybody properly prepares their food now right they're bringing it to the big rock they're draining it of blood they're preparing it. They're eating it. Now, everybody's had a big feast, but they're tired. It's been a long day, right? And yet Saul is excited and says, he gets another great brainstorm and says, let's keep going in the middle of the night. Verse 36, then Saul said, let us go down after the Philistines by night and plunder them until the morning light. 
Let us not leave a man of them. So the people said, okay, do whatever seems good to you. They were pretty faithful subjects to the king. All right, we'll go. But the priest said, let us draw near to God here. I love that. The priest says, not Saul, but the priest says, maybe we should inquire of God first. <laughs> Again, another revelation as to the, the, the true motive of Saul. It's about him, his glory, his vengeance, his desires. He's not really caring what God thinks. But the priest says, hey, let's inquire of God. And Saul inquired of God. Shall I go down after the Philistines? Will you give them into the hand of Israel? But he, God, did not answer him that day. And Saul said, Come here, all you leaders of the people, and know and see how this sin has arisen today. For as the Lord lives, who saves Israel, though it be in Jonathan my son, he shall surely die. But there was not a man among all the people who answered him. What is going on here? Saul once is going to inquire of the Lord. Now, the way that happened back at this time, the high priest had an ephod, and in that ephod there was a, a Urim and Thummim, two stones. And um, let's continue. I, I, what they would do, though, these stones would kind of be rolled like dice, and they could give a yes or no, or as we see in this case, a no answer at all, right? A non-answer. Yes, no, no answer, right? Um, and that's what happened here. Should we go against the Philistines, Lord? Now, by the way, they believed totally in the sovereignty of God and that he ruled all things, so they totally believed that God controlled these dice. That's what casting lots are. So their faith really was in the sovereignty of God. I'm glad we don't do that anymore, but I'm saying this is what they did. Should we go against the Philistines? Will you give them into our hands? Roll the dice. And instead of the two stones coming up with the answer that meant yes or no, they came up with nothing. Which Saul interpreted mean as meaning there is sin. Somebody has sinned and God is not telling us. And he went on to say, if that sin is even in my son, I don't care. That person will die. Another rash statement made by Saul who does not, of course, have foot and mouth disease. No, of course he does. He's always putting his foot in his mouth. He's always saying something rash. But look at verse 40. And by the way, it's so funny. Again, none of the Israelites are giving up Jonathan, right? They saw him eat the honey, but uh, they're not, they don't say a word. <laughs> verse 40. Then he said to Israel, you shall be on one side and I and Jonathan, my son, will be on the other side. That's customary, by the way. The royalty would separate themselves from the people if there were judgments to be made by lots being cast. So that's natural. And the people said to Saul, do what seems good to you. Therefore, Saul said, O Lord God of Israel, why have you not answered your servant this day? If this guilt is in me or in Jonathan, my son, O Lord God of Israel, give Urim. But if this guilt is in your people, Israel, give Thummim. So that's the answer. If it comes up, Urim, however those stones work. By the way, Urim and Thummim are only mentioned six times in the entire Old Testament. And this account is the most descriptive of how they work, which is pretty much not much to go on. We don't know. So to this day, scholars really don't know exactly what this is. 
But the idea is if, if the stones come up Urim, whatever that signified, that would be Saul and Jonathan. And if it came up Thummim, that would be the people. That's what they're saying. So what happened? Jonathan and Saul were taken. But the people escaped. Then Saul said, cast the lot between me and my son Jonathan. And they did. And Jonathan was taken. Jonathan was revealed. So all this is true. Who is the person that broke your word? Okay, but Jonathan. Look at verse 43. Then Saul said to Jonathan, tell me what you have done. And Jonathan told him, I tasted a little honey with the tip of the staff uh, that was in my hand. Here I am. I will die. Wow. You made the rash vow, Dad. He said that person who eats will die. Well, I didn't hear that, but I did eat. And I'll submit myself. It's, it's stupid. <laughs> I'm adding that. Jonathan didn't say that, but I think that's intoned in what we've read so far. It was a rash vow. It was not well thought out. But yet notice this, I think, a godly principle. We see it with David as well, submitting to this leadership, even when it's not right. And I'm not going to get off into that. There's a lot there. But Jonathan does say, here I am. I did it. And if that's your punishment, then I will die. <laughs> now, with all these rash vows, we, we know, what, what should Jephthah have done? Here's, what, here's, here's where pride destroys us. Jephthah, when he made that vow that whatever walks out his front door, he'll slay, when he got home and saw his daughter walk out, you know what he should have done? He should have hit his knees and begged forgiveness to God and said, Lord, forgive me. I am just a stupid man. I made a wrong vow, and I cannot keep that. Forgive me, God. But he didn't. Why? He was proud. He kept the vow, by the way. Jephthah did. He, he did. Because of pride. And, and the same is, is with Saul now. Saul had the chance to say, you know, son, I've sinned. My eyes have been off God. I was making rash vows. I repent. You see, this again is the principle for all of us in leadership, as parents, as spouses, as, as employers, as workers, wherever we find ourselves, as students, whatever. Humility, folks. We've got to be willing to say when we're wrong. As parents to our children, there's times we have to say, you know what? Dad was a little bit off on that. I was a little cranky. I was a little rash. Forgive me. Spouses to one another, same thing. There's got to be a time when we say, I, I was, I'm wrong. Church members to each other, letting each other know, I, I was wrong. I'm, I'm flesh. I'm sinful. Forgive me. Now, Saul does not do that. But that's the lesson here. He should have. What does he do? He sticks to his guns. Saul said, God do so to me and more also. You shall surely die. Wow. You're right, Jonathan. God kill me if I don't kill you. That's what he's saying. That's how I'm going to keep my word, Jonathan. Then the people said to Saul, Shall Jonathan die? Who has worked this great salvation in Israel? Far from it, buster. They finally do speak up against this injustice. And they say, wait a minute. This is the one. Jonathan's the one who believed God, 
God used Jonathan to bring a great victory. He worked with God is what that text says in the Hebrew. He worked with God to bring a great victory. He is the savior of Israel at this moment. Jonathan, not Saul. The people realize it. Saul is trying to take the credit, trying to be the savior, but the people already see it. It's Jonathan who brought salvation that day. And you think you're going to kill him because of your rash, disobedient vow? No way. <laughs> and look what it says. This is beautiful. So the people ransomed Jonathan so that he did not die. They ransomed, they redeemed Jonathan. That's the language, redemption language here. Beautiful. Then Saul went up from pursuing the Philistines and the Philistines went to their own place. So Saul was done for the day. This finally put a kibosh on his selfish tirade. But man, what a beautiful, beautiful ending to this. I mean, this situation reminds us that we too have been ransomed from the wrath of a holy God. Now it's not the same. Of course, Saul is not a perfect type of God at all. But this situation rings of the redemption brought by Christ. Jonathan is a picture. And the people at that moment are a picture. Jonathan is a picture of one who is condemned. I mean, from what the law said, he was condemned. And yet the people here do represent the Savior by saying, no, we ransom him. Now, let me just say this. This is theological because I think we need this for the whole picture of redemption in the Bible. Remember, the whole Bible points ultimately to Christ and his redemption. That, that's the whole Bible. There are types and shadows. And even in this passage, we can't help but pause for a moment and remind ourselves of the grace of God for us. And we also need to remind ourselves of true theology, which says, you know, when Jesus died on the cross and took the wrath of God in, his, in himself, he didn't do that to rescue us from the devil. I mean, that's the common misconception. Well, you know, Jesus died to save us from the devil. It's the devil that was, you know, had us in, in bondage and was going to throw us into hell and so forth. But folks, that is false theology. And though it sounds harsh to say this, and most people cringe when we go here, we, we can't help but, but, but say it. it's true. This is a foreshadow of it. Jesus was crushed and died, suffered, bled, and died under the wrath of God to rescue us from God. And the world goes crazy. Is it, what, we need rescue from God? No, God's the benevolent old grandpa sitting in the chair that loves everybody. He's in the rocking chair up there, just loves everybody. It's the devil that Jesus had to rescue us from. No. God will cast Satan into hell, and God will cast every rebellious non-believer into hell. 
You see, it's God that we have to be reconciled with. We didn't have to be reconciled with Satan. <laughs> no, we had to be reconciled with God. Matthew 10, 28, that's why Jesus said, and do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear Him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. So though we deserve the wrath of an angry, just God, and we are under that condemnation, all of us, because of our sin, we're born sinners condemned and under the condemnation and under the wrath of a holy God. And though that's true, Jesus has taken away that wrath of that holy God by taking away the reason for the wrath. Isn't this glorious? This is the doctrine of propitiation. Let's look at this. I'm gonna, we're closing out here. 1 John 2, 1 and 2. Glorious for those who know Christ. Look at this. He says, my little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin, but if anyone does sin, which we will and do, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins. What a statement. What is so important about that statement? What, what does it even mean? We don't use that word much. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. That means that there's nobody in the whole world that, we're ever, that will ever be propitiated with God apart from Christ. Christ is the only way that propitiation can be made for anybody in the whole world. It's Christ. What does that mean? It means to remove the wrath. He has taken away God's anger toward us. You say, wait, God was angry with us? Yes, he's angry with the wicked every day, the Bible says. I know, oh boy, this is getting longer and longer, isn't it? Whew. I know, I know that the theological ones will spout, and not theological ones, but Christians will spout, hate the sin, love the sinner, right? And I understand there's some truth to that. There's a degree where we all have to love each other because we know we're sinners and we hate our sin, and yet we love people. That I understand. But we can't impose that upon God and say, well, God has to love everybody. He can't love or he can't hate a person. He just hates their sin. I got to remind us, Jesus didn't say that God is going to destroy our sin in hell. He's going to destroy people. God cast the sinner into hell, not just their sin. You see this? This is why it's so important for us to understand that there must be some way to diffuse that wrath and anger against sin because that sin is on us. And therefore, God not only hates the sin, but he hates the unrighteous one who sins against him. Rightfully so, because we are blasphemous and we are mocking his holiness and we are offending an absolute holy God and we can't wrap our head around that. And we have no hope because we also have the reverse Midas touch. Everything we touch becomes sinful. Even our good works, the Bible says, are filthy rags. Why? Because of this reverse Midas touch, so to speak. We're sinful and therefore what we even do out of good 
motives and our own little sinful hearts are still sinful to God. We can't. There's nothing in us that could make God say, okay, I'm not angry at you and your sin anymore. There's nothing we can do. That's why John, uh, 1 John 2, 2 is so important. But we have an advocate with the Father. Someone who stands in our place between us and the Father. Someone who not only pleads our case, but reveals the evidence. What's the evidence? That He has taken away our sin. And therefore, the very reason for God's wrath has been removed. And therefore, God is no longer angry at us if we are in Christ. He is our Father. His steadfast love endures forever. He will never leave us nor forsake us. That's the good news of the gospel. That's why we must rest in the gospel. We must trust Jesus Christ and him alone as our righteousness. It's glorious. So let us no more be distressed, but let us rejoice in the deliverance of Christ. This is the history of the church, folks. This is why Christians can leave in a world that we live in, walk out these doors after being in this world with God and his word and his Holy Spirit reminding us of the glorious love he has shown to us in Christ. And we now have this, this truth that God is for us. He is no longer against us. All because of the righteousness of Christ. And we can walk out those doors now, victorious, and live for the glory of God. Let's pray. Our Father God, we are humbled because we all know who we are. We know our rebelliousness. We know our selfishness. We know our pride. Many of us, based upon this text of Scripture that you have revealed to us, have sinned this morning by coming because of our motives, because we've come for the wrong reason. Forgive us, Father, that even in our attempts to be good, we fail. Therefore, cause us to lay all of that aside our self-righteousness let it be consumed and burned on the ash heap and let us run to the righteousness of jesus christ and hide in him we thank you father for your promise that all those who come to him you will in no wise cast out we pray all these things in christ's name amen